1: Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. My name is Andrew, and for better or worse, I've been given the privilege of guiding you through tonight's session, the first session of 2022. I'll start with a short introduction about myself. I was brought into the fold a few months ago as a narrator and have recently been put in charge of editing the story audio for the podcast. It has been an absolutely horrible pleasure or pleasurable horror, to be a part of the team here at Tales to Terrify. Next, I want to thank all of our patrons and supporters for their continued devotion to the cause. It is because of you wonderful weirdos that we are able to give a little back to our narrators. Also, for the authors out there, our submissions are open. We accept horror story submissions of up to 10,000 words. If you've got one, Send it in. What's the worst that could happen? Drawing an eldritch entity into the material plane from the fathomless darkness between the stars? There's no reason to be afraid. Or is there? Tonight, I will lead you into the mind of a misanthrope, into the cozy bedroom of a well-read and precocious little girl, and then across the stars to investigate a planet from which no vessel has returned. Okay, enough idle talk. Let us begin the session. Our first story for the evening comes from B.W. Carter. B.W. Carter spends his days administering child welfare programs from the confines of a tiny monochrome cubicle. He spends his nights in a slightly larger, slightly more colorful cubicle, waterboarding word counts with deranged glee. Though publishing both poetry and prose extensively in his college and grad school days, when this story first appeared under a different name and a slightly different form, he quit competing in the publishing game for two decades before deciding to cast himself back into the brutal thick of it. Besides Tales to Terrify, he's been published most recently online at Mystery Tribune, Flash Fiction Magazine, and The Drabble, among others children of the night. Join me for Testament, first published in the Literary Journal of Murray State University. Do not be afraid. This is your dirge. This is your testament. Dostoevsky would be proud of the man you've become, spited by nature, blighted by nature, ill-suited to the fortunes of luck and love. All in all, a loathsome creature. You are undead. That is, existentially speaking. You are long shed, through the rather grim circumstance of some years before, the burden of a mortal coil. You bear, rather, an immortal royal, skulking about, sheathed in unhealthy flesh, from shadow to shadow, from dust to rust. Yet still you breathe. Your heart, for all efforts to the contrary, continues to beat. You crave sex and chocolate. You crave, much as any man, the misfortune of others, the pain and slow suffering of others. Such calamity assures you are not alone. Such calamity keeps you company in the abyss of your cerebral oubliette. This Wish for misery toward others is a spiteful trait, granted a most cruel and shameful trait, a sin compounded by deepest desire. But spite is all you have. Sitting alone in your empty garret cell before the single cracked window, watching pedestrians cavort with the rituals of daily life under, if all goes well just this once, a tar-dark, bruised sky. Those plastic polyester masses out there are not daunted like you by a few drops of rain. Automatons, they seem, marching in blatant disregard of the dreary, bleary conditions of another day in hell. The bastards, Embrace the drudgery even, set out at dawn to make it dusk. And that, if only for the moment, is why you hate them. That pious hint of pride in their strides. They are not afraid, and you must hate in all circumstance that which you most fear. But... You digress, a glum descent into realization. You are undead, shuffling about in the hushed gloom a misanthrope's routine affords. Alone and forever aloof, Mamba number 5 at the zombie zoo. A half-empty bottle of gin dangles from numb fingers over a cheap foil ashtray the cheap linoleum floor your constant companion again tonight every night alcohol is a most receptive lover alcohol makes the past almost bearable it certainly maintained your aspersions toward everything drunk tonight like every other night chin tipped on your chest Glowing tip of a cigarette just far enough off your shirt not to light you up. Immersed in gin, you do not desire as much the rifle leaned in its corner. Or the faces below, frozen in that red smear of terror in your mind, where you crouch, empty cartridges smoking as they eject. Aim. Aim. Again, and the polyester screams, again. One, two, three, four, five, six, etc., etc. You digress. Alcohol is a most encouraging lover, after all. One more swallow, and you could do away with them all. One fell swoop. But who then would be left to take your confession? Isn't that the point of these vengeful, incriminating fantasies? They're all you have, alone and forever aloof in your plasterboard cage. Undead, unmoored, a long night of drinking and dreaming your demons. Murder of the mind kind. Ashamed, yes, oh yes, but nonetheless stalwart in your hate. Occasionally you do stagger, lover's slender neck in hand, to the tiny toilet which, with its reek of ammonia and naked bulb hanging from a wire in the pressed tin ceiling, is the only other room in your flat. And it is there. You contemplate the warped and reddened features in the cracked, rust-speckled mirror, jutting, slavering fangs, forked tongue, flared snout. The flinty gaze first green, then gold, then narrow red slits, rippling, surreal. But real, you'd swear it, as real as desire. Which, however seething and nefarious, is only that. Lust, not of the libido, but of your lunatic mind. And it is all you have. Simply all you have. Step away from the mirror. Step to the window. This is your testament. Do not be afraid. That was B.W. Carter's Testament, as read by, well, myself. Now that we've put ourselves into the proper mindset, let us proceed further into our imaginations. After all, you can do anything if you truly believe, even fly perhaps. Though a sprinkle of fairy dust never hurt anyone thus our second tale of the evening comes from the mind of alpheus williams alpheus williams curmudgeon pagan pantheist loves his wife nature good whiskey and dogs lives and writes in a small coastal village in australia with his wonderful wife and their border collie his works have appeared in the molotov cocktail winners anthology baron magazine Storjee, the right launch The Fabulist Magazine, Shotgun Honey, Bristol Noir, Bath Flash Fiction, and Hellhound Magazine et al. He has been long listed in Bath Flash Fiction, Retreat West Comp, and Wigleaf, and shortlisted in Baron Magazine Flash Contest. Two stories have been nominated for the Pushcart Prize 2021. Listen with me, children of the night, to Alpheus Williams' The Boy Who Never Grew Up, a Tales to Terrify original.
3: The girl is only twelve, but there's a steadiness to her, a boundless intellectual curiosity and a strong sense of duty and responsibility. The mother says she's old for her age, a sage in the body of a child. She enjoys the trust and confidence of both parents. So it is that on this crisp autumn evening, with leaves of gold, bronze and scarlet somersaulting down the street in gusty winds, her parents, rugged up against the cold and dressed in their finest, leave the house to attend the theatre, leaving the girl in charge of things family and domestic. When the clock strikes half past eight, she instructs her younger siblings to change into their night clothes, check closets and search under beds. When the boys are convinced there's nothing in their bedroom other than their sister and themselves, she reads them a horror story. Their eyes grow wide as they listen. They search the dancing shadows of their room in the flickering light of the lamp. The story finished, she wishes them pleasant dreams and a good night, and shuts the door to their room. There are lessons to be learned in horror stories. They're instructive, and she feels it's more important for her brothers to be prepared for a dangerous world than a peaceful sleep. She returns to her bedroom where her collection of fairy stories, horror novels, crime, ancient myths, and the arcane fill the bookshelves along her wall She is fascinated with fairy stories and the arcane, believes they carry important messages. And while most of the stories existed in fanciful settings of magical forests and fanciful kingdoms with wise kings, evil queens, lonely princesses, gallant princes, talking frogs, dwarves who can spin straw into gold, and an ample amount of bloodletting, head-chopping and witch-burning, she recognised at an early age the most realistic part of fairy tales was the violence. While talking frogs, cats in boots and gold-spinning dwarves were not so much a part of modern-day London under Victorian rule, she is convinced they are simply disguised in different forms and the blood and violence are just as real here as they were in fairy tales. She dresses for bed in her long flannel nightie and opens a book about a siren who seduces sailors only to take them down to the bottom of the sea to watch them drown. She loves the images of underwater seascapes and creatures. Although she is beginning to find the siren a little one-dimensional and tiresome, she finds more depth and character in the siren's companion Octopus, who expresses a degree of empathy and compassion for the randy sailors. The shadow had journeyed through oceans of time, searched until it saw her through the latticed windows of her bedroom, somewhere warm, somewhere safe. It couldn't resist. It slithered in without invitation, hid during the day, surfaced at night when the girl lit the reading lamp. In the beginning it was shy, nestled into corners, watched her from a distance. Braver now, it leans over her shoulder and reads with her, taps her arm to turn the page. Anyone who observes such things knows that shadows may enter a room uninvited via a window or an open door. The trees that line the boulevard in front of the girl's house do it all the time, their twisted branches casting trembling shapes of hands and fingers on the wall. This isn't true for the boy now tapping at her window. He tappity-taps on the glass, searching for something. He seems harmless. Threads air three stories up in the twinkling night sky, his shady smile charming, beatific, enticing. All mischief and fun. Strange, other forces are at work. The shadow snakes about the walls of the girl's room like a plume of smoke in panic. She marks the place in her book with a magic feather, leaves her bed, opens the window, and invites him in. She knows what she is doing. She's no stranger to such things. He captures the shadow, stuffs it in a pocket. A fairy rides his shoulder... He flitters about the room like a giant moth trying to impress. The girl opens her book, continues reading, ignores him. He sits on the edge of her bed, points to the book, eyes asking questions. It's a book about sirens beneath the sea, she says. Shall I read it to you and take you there? He nods, enthusiastic. The fairy on his shoulder observes the girl through squinty lids, suspicious. She knows enchantment. The girl ignores her, hides her smile, continues reading, lulls the boy into a tranquil stillness. He floats on the words. The fairy, frantic, buzzes the boy's head, startles him from his enchantment. "'I have to leave before sunrise,' he says. "'Come with me and read your stories to the lost in the land of never.' We'll swim in warm waters off sandy beaches, ride the backs of dolphins, watch mermaids comb their sea-green hair with the ribs of fish long dead and dance to their siren songs. She closes the book, sets it on the nightstand, rests her hand under her pillow. No thanks. I'll stay here. Mummy and Daddy will be home from the theatre soon. They'll miss me, she says. Come with me he says, eyes stealing, fangs dropping over his bottom lip. I'll take you to the land of never. You'll never grow up, never wash dishes, never cook and iron shirts or darn socks. I won't be doing those things. I'm to be a detective, she says. I insist, he says, grabs her wrist in a grip of ice. The little fairy laughs like glass chimes dangling in the wind. Not tonight, boy who's never going to grow up, says the girl. She pulls a fire-hardened wooden stake from under her pillow, slams it into his chest. He bubbles and withers like a salted garden slug, melts into a steaming pile of mush. The fairy screams in horror. Oh, hush, says the girl. It's untoward for fairies to hang about with vampires. There's no law, cries the fairy. As a matter of fact, there is, says the girl. It's in this book. She opens the book and gestures for the fairy to look. The fairy flutters to the open page and the girl slams the book shut, squashes her like a pressed flower. She'll look lovely, mounted on the wall, framed behind a pane of glass. The shadow escapes the oozing mass of decomposing boy. The girl scoops up the mess and dumps it down the toilet cleans the stain and returns to bed, turns off the light and sinks into her pillow. The shadow, free of boy and fairy, coils up at the foot of her bed like a giant black kitten and goes to sleep.
2: That was Alpheus Williams' The Boy Who Never Grew Up, as read by Jasmine Arch. Jasmine Arch is a narrator, writer, poet, and podcaster from a rural corner of Belgium with two horses, four dogs, and a husband who knows better than to distract her when she's fiddling with stories. Her work has appeared on The Other Stories, both as a writer and narrator, and in newmyths.com, among others.
4: underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer flexible budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals get more cool facts about united Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com
1: as a person with a very deep voice i'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns but a deep voice doesn't sell b2b and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell b2b either that's why if you're a b2b marketer you should use linkedin ads Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply.
2: We have become intimate with the inner demons of a troubled mind. We have witnessed the ruthless efficiency of a cunning young girl. Now... Our third and final tale calls to us from across the stars with a transmission from Malena Salazar Maciá. Malena Salazar Maciá is an award-winning Cuban writer of science fiction and fantasy. She has authored several novels, most recently Aliento de Dragón, 2020. Translated by Toshia Kamei, Malena's short fiction has appeared in Clark's World, The Future Fire, Mithila Review, and elsewhere. Children of the night, follow me one final time into Prayers of the God-fearing, first published in Teleport Magazine.
0: we going down? Michaela asked. No, Vero answered, unfazed. It's an abandoned planet. Our protocol requires us to send the probes to check temperature, oxygen levels, identify hostile agents, collect samples, and perform primary analyses, Michaela cut in. We've got favorable readings. What's stopping us from going down and doing the real work? Prudence, Vero replied. The remnants of buildings eroded by time and abandonment loomed on the screen. And my own experience. Haven't you read the report? Yes, but it's full of technobabble. Practically unreadable. I joined the mission to find out what made Termil 57 a cursed planet. And your first doctorate requires practical activities. That, too, Michaela answered between her teeth. Her initial excitement vanished. The probes scanned flat landscapes and transmitted equally repetitive results. I want your personal report, doctor. I'm not convinced my future success depends on working through probes. Instead, I'd rather collect samples and decrypt lost civilizations. Vero leaned back in her chair. We've got no reliable records on what destroyed Termil 57, Vero began. Most files are corrupted. The inhabitants failed to transmit anything substantial to the base before they lost communication. They did emphasize one thing, though. No one comes in, no one comes out. They accepted their fate stoically. Terminal 57 was forgotten. No one was allowed to enter its atmosphere. But some broke the rules anyway, Michaela said. Yes, they did, Vero nodded. Lured by myths and legends. No one came back, however. I chose this mission for the sake of the truth. Termil 57's destruction is ancient history. We need to look into it. It's up to us to find. Vera stopped. With a grimace, she leaned over the screen. Michaela, who remained absorbed in the explanation, realized that they had lost communication with the three probes sent to explore the planet's rough terrain. Vero tapped keys on the console, attempting to reestablish a link with the probes. She executed a second emergency protocol, then a third. She failed to reestablish communications. They can't have just disappeared, Vero murmured. We found no life for any biological form representing a threat. We've detected no electronic operating system sending virtual or physical attacks. No report indicates the probes have been destroyed. Termil 57 has nothing but junk. Let's send the 5019, Michaela said, like a novice who hadn't sniffed out the dangers of each mission. She wasn't backing down, not when she was so close to achieving her goal. No, Pharaoh said. Without much thought, Michaela classified her mentor as an obstacle. We need to retreat to the base or send a message requesting support. We only have three probes left. That's enough, Michaela stood her ground. Vero raised one eyebrow. Let's send it. We'll configure it to detect energy sources of any kind, of any magnitude. In real time, we'll transmit a mapping of the points with more energy concentration. I expect you, the prominent xeno-archaeologist Veronica Illaire, to be a little more resilient. You wouldn't panic over the first setback. Think about it. The probe will give us more data, and we will assess what to do. Going home empty-handed is not an option. While Michaela endured her mentor's silence, she clenched her fists until the nails pricked her palms. She was about to take a decisive step in her career. If she succeeded, she would earn renown, acclaim, and a spot on any exploration team. Michaela Habat's name would go down in history as a xenoarchaeologist who solved the mystery of cursed planets. In open defiance of her mentor, Michaela programmed the next probe. She added visible, electromagnetic, and frequency spectrum detection. Pharaoh watched her in silence. When the probe was launched toward Termil 57, Pharaoh said nothing and kept her gaze fixed on the screen. If her apprentice's behavior bothered her, she didn't show it. The first readings didn't pique her interest. The planet was dead. Not even bacteria proliferated. Even so, a flickering red dot appeared on the western continent. Nothing else. The only energy source detected on the entire planet was there, but it was weak as the occasional wink of a star millions of light years away. In a matter of minutes, the probe saved the distance that separated it from the signal and initiated an approach between the rusty mountains. The video became clear on the screens without interference. The last image Michaela and Vero received before the fourth probe vanished bewildered them. What does this mean? Michaela asked. It means we should forget about this planet. Mark heading to the base. Wait! Michaela pursed her lips. I'll get the recognizance capsule and my spacesuit. I'm going down. Michaela expected Vero to oppose her impertinence with the force of a supernova. She considered her own decision reckless. Yet returning home with the mission aborted wasn't going to speak highly of her. She falsified recommendations and crushed enough candidates to obtain a place with Veronica Ilaire, and explore Termil 57, an unexplored xeno-archeological gem. She craved a triumph, her triumph. She was willing to snatch it from Vero if necessary. Vero responded to her momentum with professionalism, offering a show of control over her nerves. Michaela let envy chew on her for a few minutes. The rational part of her was able to understand the depth of the well where she intended to dive, because what probe was capable of disappearing without triggering an alert or being detected? Even if she didn't show it openly— Vero didn't seem very keen to find out. But Michaela was determined. Termil 57's curse had become an achievable obsession with all the recognition that went with it. If you don't want to go down, Doctor, Michaela's words pierced the air like knives, you can stay here. I won't hold it against you. One of us must operate the ship if something happens, but you must announce that the discovery is mine. Michaela waited for her words to sink in. Vero frowned, the faint wrinkles between her eyebrows deepening. She was taken aback by her disciple who so blatantly demanded the glory of an unprecedented discovery. Michaela savored the defeat crossing Vero's heretofore unchanging expression. No, I'll go with you, Vero said in a calm tone as she rose with elegance. You may need help down there. Perhaps whatever destroys probes isn't limited to doing just that. You need a contingency plan. Of course, Michaela said, feeling comfortable. The tables had turned. She was in charge. Her friends would be thrilled to hear how she made Veronica Illaire hide her tail between her legs. I calculated the time it took for the probes to disappear. We've got 20 minutes to go down, collect a sample from the power source, and return to the ship. Before preparing the capsule, we're going to load all the information we've got so far from Termil 57 into a probe, including the location of the power source and the video of the structure where it was detected. I'll schedule it to send itself to the base in 20 minutes. Michaela took Vero's silence as victory. She prepared the probe, the capsule, and checked her spacesuit for leaks. When she returned to the cockpit and put on her space helmet, Vero recorded a personal log and downloaded the information from the microchip into the probe they would send to the quadrant base. Michaela didn't interrupt Vero, staying away from her. She thought she should leave a message, too. Yet she had no time to approach the panel, because Vero was already straightening up to put on her space helmet. Michaela took a couple of seconds to follow suit. Let's go to the capsule. Vero's voice reached her through the transmitter. They took the remaining probe, which was programmed to protect them and the samples they would obtain. As they entered the atmosphere, they set their timers for twenty minutes. The exploration capsule descended at a dizzying velocity. It took them two minutes to traverse toward their precise landing spot. When they touched down, three minutes had passed. Michaela was the first to leave the module. Without betraying her amazement. She observed the construction they had seen in the video captured by the last probe before it disappeared. A pyramid made of scrap metal soared before her. A huge, magnificent, matte gray pyramid the same color as the planet's soil. Thus, it was indistinguishable from orbit. The entrance was open. An arch of absolute darkness. However, what disturbed Michaela about the video was the vision of hundreds of rusty, inert androids crawling toward the building. Followed by the probe, Vero walked quickly among the androids without even grazing them, traveling on foot because any indiscriminate use of technology could damage the findings. Michaela considered using the suit's thrusters as she followed, but thought better of it. Michaela couldn't look away from the androids on the ground. Their eye sensors were dangling out of their sockets. Their agape mouths revealed rust-stained teeth. Their tongues remained paralyzed in cries of suffering. Do robots suffer? she wondered. All of them possessed a terrifying similarity to human beings, as if they had been the fruit of a fussy craftsman. Even the dark wires in their hair were as fine as real hair fibers. The mouth of the pyramid swallowed both women they had 15 minutes left. As they stepped further inside, more androids appeared. In the gloom, they even looked more human than Vero and Michaela. But when their eyes adjusted, the shining metal dispelled the illusion. The walls were lined with pictograms, which were accompanied by long scribbles in a language Michaela couldn't identify. It wasn't a common human language. Vero used the probe to scan as much information as possible.
4: We've seen enough,
0: Vero murmured. She certainly didn't like the inside of the pyramid. Kapha guy. Let's go back. No, Michaela said and shivered still in her spacesuit. But she shook off ominous sensations and gazed down the corridor. Her body temperature shot up in spite of the suit regulator.
4: We still have some time left. Is it not obvious?
0: Vero never lost her cool. Digital rebellion has occurred. AIs massacred human beings. The planet's energy ran out, except for some generator here inside the
4: pyramid. The androids were damaged trying to reach it. Who knows what guards it? But it destroys everything that comes near. We must go back.
0: Thrilled by the impending discovery, Michaela ignored Vero and entered the bowels of the pyramid. A sad digital rebellion wasn't an academic delicacy. Something hummed inside the building, something precious. Michaela wouldn't leave without it. Pharaoh followed her at a deliberate pace as the probe hovered overhead. Michaela's tenacity bore fruit when they stepped into a room filled with stone sarcophagi and wall niches that told the planet's history in an unknown language a burial chamber. They had ten minutes left. Without hesitation, Vero pushed the lid off a grave and peered inside. The probe buzzed around, shot video, and picked up bits of metal and desecrated debris. Drunk with triumph, Michaela watched the niches occupied by androids with closed eye implants and serene expressions, wrapped in shrouds and adorned with jewels. Some had assumed the lotus position, like Buddhist monks trying to reach nirvana. Others lay bandaged, like Egyptian mummies. Like fetuses inside the wombs, metallic children slept, covered with chica and coca leaves and surrounded by toys. Michaela spotted a rosary woven between an android's fingers. Robots? Practiced religions? she murmured. The probe buzzed overhead. She stepped toward the android. She tore off a piece of mortis with her pliers. She snatched the rosary. Then she withdrew to herself how is it possible? Did their programming evolve to the point where they believed themselves to be human? Did they try to be like humanity to the point of possessing a soul? Did they undergo a religious conversion in search of salvation? Or perhaps Terminal 57 was a planet of cognitive robots. To what or who were they praying exactly? A sharp sting shot through her spine. By reflex, She scratched herself over her spacesuit. It was a splendid discovery. Her persistence had finally paid off. She had found what she was looking for the secrets of the cursed planet, the propellant for a meteoric ascent. Yet she hadn't gotten rid of the inconvenience behind her. Gasping for breath with excitement, Michaela turned back. Vero groped through the trousseau that belonged to an android seated in a niche facing southwest the probe was no longer in the room, fulfilling its programming. As Michaela awkwardly retraced the hallway, she imagined herself standing at an immaculate podium, surrounded by an admiring crowd. She would talk about God-fearing AIs. She would bring up the disaster that occurred on Termil 57 and narrate with appropriate somberness the fatal accident Dr. Veronica Illaire had suffered. She would eulogize the brave Vero, who sacrificed herself as she let Michaela board the capsule and escape to the safety of orbit. Michaela tripped over an android and fell on all fours. Short of breath, she collapsed against the wall. As she felt her mobility limited, panic crept up her chest like a spider. There's something strange here. That's right. Vero stood next to her. She didn't seek the height of her eyes. It didn't comfort her in any way. For her survival, Michaela mentally discarded Plan B and held out her hand. I can't breathe, Michaela gasped.
4: Help me get out of here now.
0: They had six minutes left. You're perfect right there, Vera replied. Michaela frowned more confused than when she'd found God-worshipping androids.
4: During my first foray, I was reckless. I got carried away by despair. I couldn't do it. Couldn't even make conclusive records. Now, thanks to you, my fourth rebirth will work better. Thank you.
0: What are you talking about? Michaela asked, desperately looking around. She wanted to move, but felt as if someone had nailed her to the spot.
4: My family lived on Termil 57 when the disaster
0: struck, Vero said, and looked around as if she were on a picnic instead of a cursed planet. Michaela felt herself lose what remained of her mobility, her bones suddenly heavier. A tingling sensation shot through her mouth.
4: I was an intern in the quadrant,
0: Vero added. How old is she really? Michaela wondered. Thanks to technological marvels, humans could extend life a little beyond 150 years, but Vero looked about 100, and the Termil 57 catastrophe had happened a long time ago. Perhaps she had remained, looking relatively youthful through cosmetic surgeries and stem cell treatments.
4: From then on, I did everything in order to come back, Vero said. To find out where my family was and what happened. To discover the secret of destruction. To get the weapon of the gods who punished the planet. It could be very useful. Do you have any idea how many hostile civilizations would pay to obtain what's hidden on this planet? Or to destroy it? For the sake of goodness or understanding? Serve them. Yes. Accept them. Embrace them. Bring them offerings. I had time to choose. So I became a prominent xeno-archaeologist, free to visit any devastated planet for the sake of science, like Termil 57. The first time, I came alone. I ignored the reports and entered the atmosphere. I didn't bring a suitable sacrifice for conversion. Silly me. I don't know what happened to me in my biological life, I never went back to the planet. But I left instructions, just like now, before leaving the ship. My consciousness. Information. A rebirth. Another chance.
0: Michaela opened her mouth to form words, but failed on the first few attempts. A sour, metallic taste peppered her saliva as she swallowed it down, her tongue heavy and coated. Her fingers stiffened, like her legs and her torso, inside the gloves she felt no pain. She felt herself transform into something else. She could think as well as someone on the brink of death possibly could. Pharaoh wasn't human, much less organic. She was a cognitive bot. Illegal, presumably. Michaela shivered. Throughout her career, she had been in the hands of an android with a copy of the brilliant Veronica Illaire's Conscience. She had heard of crazy, degraded cognitive bots, but she always dismissed them as urban legends until she landed on Termil 57 with someone she thought was her mentor, who now subjected Michaela to her ravings.
4: They appreciate the power
0: sources, Pharaoh continued,
4: but they delight in the organic. Listen, they're satisfied. How wise to bring you with me.
0: Pharaoh watched one hand in fascination.
4: They didn't touch the probe. Instead, they'll deplete my energy as soon as they're done with you. It doesn't matter. I'm truly grateful to you, little Micah. I'm sorry it ends like this. But believe me, your sacrifice will achieve a greater good.
0: At some point in the past, the nanobots were servile and prolonged human life. At the height of a schism caused by some attack or corrupt file, They decided to rid their hosts of all diseases for further preservation. The most sensible thing to do was to transform their organic components into non-organic ones. After all, the latter lasted longer, even if their hosts died in the process. When the nanobots were left without an energy source, they devoured the rest of the planet before they went into hibernation, waiting for someone or something to come around to provide them with more food. Michaela's eyes turned into eye sensors. The lights were going out for her. Yes, that was it. Just as a stream of nanobots invaded her through her spacesuit, she gradually turned into an android, her energy petering out bit by bit. The nanobots crawled through her system, and nubots messed with her DNA chain itself. Pharaoh served the gods of Termil fifty seven, invisible, unreachable, omnipresent, nano gods of ruin. She had one minute left. Pharaoh crouched down next to Michaela. She put a hand on her head. Don't be afraid, Pharaoh whispered softly.
4: I'll come back in another body. I'll bring more sacrifices. They will be converted like you. Gods will be pleased. They won't unleash their fury on the rest of the universe. They call me their guardian. I am. I will be. But you'll have a place in the pyramid. You were the first to help me. You deserve recognition. When you're near the end, you begin to believe in something, in someone. I should have in my first life as an organic entity. I'll give you this prayer. It'll help you pass without
0: fear. Pharaoh moved her mouth closer to Michaela's hearing sensor. I slide the bolt of the door, Pharaoh began.
4: It opens before the mysteries of the lower world. Open the way for my soul toward the eternal abode. May I come to it in peace. Divine spirits, watch. My soul marches at your side. It speaks to you. It's purified like you, since the balance of judgment has been declared in its favor.
0: Michaela went off in peace, just as her suit chronometer clicked down to zero.
2: That was Milena salazar macias Prayers of the God-Fearing, as read by Emily Strand. Emily Strand is a writer, musician, and college professor living in Ohio who really enjoys robots. Find out more about Emily on her website, emilystrand.com, or her Twitter, at EKCStrand. Thank you so much, Emily. Alas, children of the night, the hour grows late, and we have run out of tales to tell. Thank you for undertaking this journey with me. I know I speak for the entire crew when I say that we truly savor your company, your unease, and your fear. Join us again next week as we root around through elder summoning rituals from somewhere, anywhere, with more tales to terrify.